Well, we're going to be in the book of James um, again. And we're going to look at the section that begins with verse 1 of chapter 5. There's six verses here that we'll be dealing with today. So chapter 5 of James, 1 through 6, and I'd like Jim Kelly to come and read for us again. James chapter 5. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted and their rust will be a witness against you and consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you cries out against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabbath. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. Well, we come to this section this morning that has an obvious central theme or subject, and that's the subject of riches. At first glance, that section might almost seem to stand alone, but we know that that's not the case if you've been uh, at these Bible studies in James in the past. We know that he's actually dealt with this subject of riches a number of places throughout the letter. Let me just remind you here in chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, where he seems to be talking to some professing believers um, who had some wealth, he exhorts them to put no confidence in their riches. And it might be that the situation you remember was that the Christians, the early Christians, had been scattered out of Jerusalem because of persecution. And it might be that they had some wealth that was now huh, being taken away from them because of the persecution. But in any case, they were not to put any confidence in their riches. In chapter 2, he talks about not showing special favoritism to the rich. And we also learn in that portion of the letter that this letter was actually written primarily to the poor who were often oppressed by the rich. Let's just turn there real quick back to chapter 2. And... uh, Verse 5, listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into the courts? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? So uh, indictment there of of the rich in terms of how they're treating uh, the poor the righteous poor, the believers, 
dragging them into court. Uh, in chapter 3, where it talks about authentic faith having, which is always combined with true works for God, um, he brings out that some of those works would include caring for a needy brother or sister. So that's in chapter 3. Chapter 4, James deals with the cause of conflicts in the church. And he says that these can be traced back to a self-centered lifestyle, people living for selfish pleasure, which very often involves money and possessions, which he then brings up in chapter 5. And uh, actually at the end of chapter 4 in verse 13, he warns about an arrogant attitude related to engaging in business and making a profit but leaving God out of your plans. So there's riches even involved in that. So in this section we're looking at now, uh, verses 1 through 6 in chapter 5, James speaks almost like an Old Testament prophet. If you've read the Old Testament, you've, you've heard uh, people, uh, prophets, speaking, pronouncing gloom or doom upon the ungodly and unrighteous people of that time. So the question might arise if we're thinking here about this, why is he addressing the rich if he's primarily speaking to poor, persecuted Christians? I mean, why would he go into this thing on the rich if that's who? He, if this letter was written to these uh, Christians who had been pushed out of Jerusalem, the Jewish Christians who had been pushed out of Jerusalem because of persecution? I think the answer is that he's doing this for the poor, persecuted believers as a warning and an encouragement to them. He's warning them not to envy the rich and des or desire to be like them because judgment will come upon the greedy and covetous. So believers should be careful to avoid all materialistic uh, attitudes. They should beware of every form of greed, as Jesus said. But he's also encouraging these poor Christians who are being exploited by the rich that God's going to deal with this injustice that they're experiencing. He will avenge the wrongs that they're suffering. The suffering saints may leave that judgment to God so that they should, should persevere in righteousness, continue on following, and not envy the rich. So James's audience was not really the rich people, even though it sounds like that's who he's addressing. The audience was re uh, really the poor, oppressed believers who worked the land of the rich. We s we'll see that here in a minute. But I, did, I wanted to read just a section here from one commentator who brings this out. He says that in pre-70 A.D. Palestine, that's before the, the Romans came in and took over Jerusalem, in pre-A.D. 70 Palestine, you had a cultural situation in which the majority of the population consists of peasants subsisting on a small plot of land. They were tenants who worked the land of the rich. So this was probably the case for many of the people that James was writing to, especially since these people were ones who had been displaced and pushed out of Jerusalem, displaced by persecution. They were forced to take whatever job that was available. So that's kind of the situation here. So I, that, I say all that to kind of give a background of, of what we're looking at here as we try to understand these verses. 
in general, I just want to give a general understanding here of what we're looking at. In general, the teaching of this passage is that the misuse of wealth and power will bring God's judgment. That's the general tenor of what we're looking at here. The misuse of wealth and power will bring God's judgment. It's important to note, I think, here at the beginning that wealth itself does not bring condemnation, but the sinful acquisition and misuse of wealth will bring certain judgment. Briefly, James says that the rich are condemned because they selfishly hoarded wealth, that's in verses 2 and 3. They cheated their workers, that's verse 4. They lived a self-indulgent lifestyle, that's verse 5. And they oppressed the righteous, that's verse 6. So it's not wealth itself that's sinful, but how a person gets it and how, and how a person uses it, what he does with it. How you got it and what you do with it. So I think that James addresses the rich here the way the Old Testament prophets addressed the ungodly because he saw them, the rich that is, oppressing the new Jewish Christian community. That's why he says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. That phrase, weep and howl, or howl or wail, weep and wail, is the way the prophets describe the reaction of the wicked when the day of the Lord arrives. For instance, let me just give you one example. There's many of these in the Old Testament. But Isaiah 13, 6, wail for the day of the Lord is near. It will come like destruction from the Almighty. The, uh, this word wail this particular word is found only in the prophets in the Old Testament. Now, I think this is interesting. Only in the prophets in the Old Testament and only in the context of judgment. That word wail. I think James is not primarily thinking about temporal suffering here on earth, but rather the punishment that will come upon these people in the day of judgment. I think, again, we should note that in verses 2 and 3, he speaks as if this has already taken place. Your riches have rotted, and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted. See, it's speaking like it's already happened. Well, why is that? Well, it's because the prophets in the Old Testament sometimes did this very thing. They spoke of some future event which was quite certain to happen because God said it would, as if it had already happened. Although these rich people thought they could trust in their riches, these things are already under the doom of the things of this world. They will be destroyed, and the way these rich people were using their riches will not benefit them in the life to come. This is, what, this is James's burden here. Because of their sinful misuse of wealth and their riches, misuse of their riches, the outcome of the way they use their wealth is just going to be worthless. It's going to be rotted, moth-eaten, and rusted away. Some commentators point out that these three main categories, these are the three main categories of material wealth in the ancient world, stored food, clothing, 
and precious metals. We usually don't think of clothing in our day as a, 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 a sign of wealth, although certain ways of dressing is. But clothing, I mean, we can go to Walmart and buy things now, but it wasn't always that way. To have a nice shirt was a sign of, of prosperity. Even I, I think of even in my, my mom's day, how they used to, if a something wore out and there was still part of the, the cloth that was good, they'd save that part and make it into a quilt or something because it, it was precious. So I'm just saying all that, that, that stored food, clothing, and precious metals were uh, some of the categories of material wealth in the ancient world. And all three of these forms of wealth James deals with. He says they're going to be rotted, moth-eaten, and rusted. When we hear that, it should remind us of Jesus' words there in the Sermon on the Mount. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store for yourself, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Now I want to add just a little aside here because some of you probably thought of this. Some people find fault with James for saying that gold and silver rusts. Now, I think James was perfectly aware that gold and silver don't naturally rust. But he was warning these rich people that even their most precious possession, even the most apparently indestructible things they owned, were doomed to decay and destruction. That's what he was doing. When God judges the world in righteousness, those things are going to be just as worthless as anything else. Their gold and their silver will become worthless like the rest of their property. The principle is this. Wealth of whatever kind, when not used for a good purpose, becomes worthless. Wealth of whatever kind, when not used for a good purpose, becomes worthless. Proverbs 11.4 says this, riches do not profit in the day of wrath. But J James goes on, he expands upon this. He says that not only will wealth be worthless on that great day, but these things will actually stand as witnesses against them. They have used them to live a life of wanton pleasure when they could have used them to do some eternal good. Instead of using them properly for something that would last for eternity, their riches were wasted. In fact, they end up decayed, worthless possessions. And those decayed, worthless possessions testify against these rich people that they foolishly and sinfully wasted what they could have used for good. So James is saying that by your sinful, selfish use of riches, you're right now storing up treasure, not the kind of treasure you think, though. See, they think they're storing, storing up treasure. Well, they're storing up treasure, but it's a treasure that's the wrath of God. I mean, that's what's being stored up. You're storing up a treasure of wrath for judgment day that will consume your flesh like fire. He uses such strong language here. He doesn't mince any words when he's speaking of the misuse of wealth. 
They thought that their wealth would protect them and help them, but the way they used it will actually cause their destruction. That's what James is saying. He continues with his indictment of the rich by showing that it's not just their misuse of wealth that cries out for judgment, but also how they obtained it. See it in verse 4. Behold the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you cries out against you, and the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. Many of the laborers in James's day would have been so poor that they depended on daily wages for survival. The need for daily bread, that Jesus talks that we should pray for our daily bread, well, that was the need for daily bread was a reality to many people in the ancient world. These rich people were oppressing the poor by withholding their wages, and it seems that in some cases this withholding was so critical that James would say they'd condemned and put these righteous people to death by that. You see that in verse 6. Let me just read another commentator here. A man named Douglas Moo writes, This period witnessed an increasing concentration of land in the hands of a small group of very wealthy landowners. As a result, many farmers were forced to earn their living by hiring themselves out to the rich landlords. Prompt payment would have been very important for the laborer who often got by on a barely subsistence level and who needed a steady income to provide daily bread for himself and his family. In a society where credit was not readily available, the failure to pay workers promptly could jeopardize life itself. This type of exploitation was something that was clearly spoken of over and over again, spoken against over and over again in the Old Testament. Let's just look up one passage on this. Deuteronomy 24, 14. Deuteronomy 24, and we'll read 14 through 18. You shall not oppress a hired servant who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your countrymen or one of your aliens who is in your land, in your towns. You shall give him his wages on his day before the sun sets, for he is poor and sets his heart on it, so that he may not cry out against you to the Lord and it become a sin in you. Um, Verse 17, You shall not pervert the justice due an alien or an orphan, nor take a widow's garment in pledge. But you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I am commanding you to do this thing. So, specifically here, not withholding the wages or oppressing a hired servant. James says that the money the rich withheld is crying out to God. It's crying out to God in condemnation for their unjust treatment of the poor. It kind of reminds me of of what God says about Abel's blood crying out from the ground for justice. So these stolen wages were crying out for justice. And uh, we're told, James says, God hears these cries. And it actually says also, 
and the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. So the cry of the, the unjust uh, wages withheld, the wages being withheld, and the cry of these laborers goes up to God. And it says, they reach the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. Why, why does he choose that term there? Well, I think he chooses that title, Lord of Sabaoth, because it pictures God as the powerful leader of a great army. The Lord of hosts is what that means. Who will judge those who oppress the weak and the powerless. They may be powerless, but God's not. He's the Lord of hosts. So the omnipotent and majestic Lord of hosts will make their cause his own. They will be, there will be a payday someday, and James says that that day is not far off. You know, this type of injustice goes on daily all around the world. Yeah. And the rich and the powerful think they can do these things in secret, or they simply can do them because they have the power to do them, and they're not going to be called to account. They will be called to account. Yeah. That's the point of what James is saying here. These things reach the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. They're not hidden from God. Well, let's go on to verse 5 then. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of one pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. Again, these are such graphic and powerful words, and, and I think... Uh, we get a sense of the righteous indignation that James felt as he saw this situation unfolding there in uh, the first century. I think verse 5 can be taken two ways. The first part of the verse is, is not hard to understand. It's very clear. He's talking about living a life of self-indulgence, a life of luxury and pleasure and extravagance without regard for the needs of the poor. That part is clear. It's very much like uh, what uh, Ezekiel says concerning the, the people of Sodom. This is in Ezekiel 16:46. It says, Behold, this is the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had arrogance, abundant food, and careless ease, but she did not help the poor and the needy. So that part, I think, is clear. That's what he's talking about. But the second part of the verse where it says, you have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. I think that can be taken a couple of different ways. Uh, one view is that James is saying that in this time of injustice, when the poor are being abused and mistreated and slaughtered, the wealthy are just fattening their hearts and living luxuriously. You could paraphrase it this way. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves even in the day that you're slaughtering others. That's one way of taking this verse. Uh, and it seems to fit verse 6, which goes on and says, you, are, you have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. It, so that, that's some commentators take it that way. The other way of taking the verse, which I think actually fits the total context better, 
is that the day of slaughter is a description of the day of judgment. The rich are selfishly and ignorantly going about accumulating wealth for themselves and spending it on their own pleasures at the very time when God's judgment is imminent. They are like cattle being fattened before they go to the slaughterhouse. The meaning of the verse would be something like this then. You have lived on the earth in selfish luxury, not realizing that you're doing that all you're doing is fattening yourself like cattle for the kill. Again, this reminds me of some of the prophetic pictures we have in the Old Testament, particularly in the book of Amos. Amos 4, 1 and 2, Amos is talking to the northern kingdom, the people of Israel, who are living in idolatry and yet uh, quite a bit of luxury at that time, self-indulgence. And this is what he says. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan. Now, he's not talking to the cows. He's actually talking to the women who are living in great luxury and extravagance. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to their husbands, Bring now that we may drink. Give me some more things, you know. Bring now that we may drink. The Lord God has sworn in his holiness. Behold, the days are coming upon you when they will take you away with meat hooks and the last of you with fish hooks. You're just fattening yourself like a cow for the day of slaughter. You see, you cows of Bashan are going to come and take you with meat hooks. Actually, this is amazing. Historians tell us that this actually literally happened when the Assyrians came in and conquered the northern kingdom. It's pretty pretty graphic here, but they, they put hooks through the lower lip of the people and let them off in the captivity that way with cords. They fastened them together with cords of hooks through the lower lip and just let them off to captivity. From great luxury to great misery, in the day when God judged the northern kingdom. So like the Old Testament prophets, James minces no words here when he's talking to these rich people. He's speaking with a real sense of righteous indignation against their self-indulgence and greed and injustice. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming coming upon you. And I, I think I should point out that some commentators believe that there was a partial fulfillment of this verse in 70 AD when Jerusalem was destroyed by the Roman armies uh, under Titus because there was a great slaughter then. Uh, hundreds of thousands of People died there in Jerusalem. And uh, those wealthy Jews would have been part of that group. It's, some, it's another amazing historical fact that, first of all, a lot of the early believers had already been scattered out of Jerusalem because of the persecution. 
Secondly, those that stayed were were uh, warned by some of the things they read in the New Testament to get out of there before Titus surrounded Jerusalem. They went off to a place called Pella. So even uh, historically, I think there was a partial fulfillment of what uh, was going on here in this situation. But uh, as terrible as that conquest of Jerusalem was, there's yet coming a day of wrath and righteous judgment when all self-indulgence and exploitation and injustice is going to be punished. Then every outcry of the poor and needy will, will be dealt with and justice will be totally and completely done. There will be a great reversal of roles in that day. The unrighteous rich will become poor and miserable. The righteous poor, the believers, will become blessed and rich beyond measure in that day. This is part of what Jesus was teaching related to the rich man and Lazarus in uh, Luke 16, 19-31. The rich man during his life received the good things. And likewise, Lazarus, the bad things. But death reversed that, and now Lazarus was comforted, and the rich man was in agony. Maybe we should look at that real quick, because it fits so well with what we're looking at, looking at here in James. Luke 16, and uh, beginning with verse 19. Actually, to really understand this account... You have to read it in its context, which is usually the case with things in the Bible. I'd like to uh, point out three things, especially in relation to what we're reading here in James. First of all, it's significant that Jesus is giving this account to the Pharisees, and it's in the context of money. It's in the context of mammon and the uh, right use of and understanding of mammon. If you look at verse 13, you just see he ends off saying some things about mammon. You cannot serve God and mammon. Okay, so he's talking about mammon being riches, money. So that's that's uh, what he's been talking about. And now he's the Pharisees heard these things, and it says in verse 14, now the Pharisees who were lovers of money were listening to these things, and they were scoffing at him. They didn't want to hear this teaching. They didn't like it. They scoffed at it because they were lovers of money. So it's in that context then that Jesus gives this account of the rich man and Lazarus. He's, he's, he's saying this primarily to show the Pharisees their hypocrisy and their evil. So that's the first thing I'd say. The second thing is that the rich man in this account may not have been a knowing exploiter of the poor. His sin was most likely the sin of omission, not commission. He lived a life of luxury on earth. He lived a life of wanton pleasure, ignoring the needs of right on his doorstep. You see that in verse 1 and verse 2. Now there was a certain rich man who habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, gaily 
living in splendor every day. And a certain poor man named Lazarus who laid at his gate covered with sores. So every day, every time Lazarus, every time the rich man walked through that gate, he saw this man. I think, I think Jesus is trying to emphasize this because this, he's talking to these Pharisees who were lovers of money. The third thing I would point out from this that relates to what we're looking at here today in James is that the ease of the rich and the suffering of the poor in this life will be reversed in the life to come. That's what he's saying here in this, in this uh, account. Verse 25. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received the good things. That's the rich man. And likewise, Lazarus, the bad things. But now he is being comforted here, and you are in agony. There's going to be a great reversal. Well, let's go back to James and look at verse 6. Verse 6, let me read it here. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. Verse 6 may partly refer to the unjust treatment that the poor believers received in the courts of that time. Remember, we we already pointed that out from chapter 2, verse 6, where James says, uh, But you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? The rich could easily rob the poor of justice in the courts because they had money. This is sadly still the case today many times. The rich person through bribes or having the best lawyer can unjustly win their case. These things are very, I mean, James is speaking to us today. He's speaking into our situation with many of the things he says here. I want to note that the righteous man is equated with the poor and the one who condemns and puts to death with the rich. That's the association he's making. You, that is the righteous, have condemned and put to death you, the, the unrighteous, the rich have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. Now, there's a reason that he makes that equation between righteousness and poor, poor, being poor and the one who condemns and the, and the rich. The reason for that equation, I think, is this. When a society promotes ungodliness, follow me here, when a society promotes ungodliness, those who are faithful to God will often suffer financially. And those who compromise with ungodliness will often achieve power and prosperity. In such a situation, poverty and poverty of spirit go together. And I don't want to lose you here. I think this is important. In those kind of situations, when a society promotes ungodliness, poverty 
and poverty of spirit often go together, as do riches and unrighteousness. Jesus talked about the mammon of unrighteousness because so often riches and unrighteousness go together. That's why I think Jesus could say, one time he'd say, blessed are those who are poor for theirs is the kingdom of God. And another time he'd say, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of God. Because poverty and poverty of spirit often go together. So also do hunger and hungering and thirsting for righteousness. People who hunger and thirst for righteousness in an unjust society will often be hungry. Now, we don't see that much in America, but if you go all around the world, you'd see that. You'd find that's true. Jesus said, Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be satisfied. I think he's talking about the the, the righteous, the, the ones who are seeking to follow God, they're hungering. They're hungering for righteousness, but because they're hungering for righteousness, it actually affects them physically in an unjust, ungodly society. You know, Jesus adds this in, in, in the Gospel of Luke. He says, But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your comfort in full. And woe to you who are well fed now, for you shall be hungry. In other words, again, there's going to be a great reversal. A great reversal when Christ comes again. The unrighteous rich will be poor, and the righteous poor will be rich. So back to verse 6 then. These righteous poor are either unable or unwilling to resist the persecution brought on them by the rich. You see where he says, he does not resist you there at the end of verse 6. He does not resist you. They seem to be helpless victims of the stratagems of the rich and powerful. That's the way it seems. But James tells them they should not despair for God's on their side. Nor should they envy the position, the present situation of the rich For God Almighty, the Lord of hosts, is against all unjust gain, especially when it involves the poor and needy being exploited. So I think that's the general tenor of what we're looking at here in this section. As I said at the beginning of the message, James is actually writing this section as a warning and encouragement to believers that had been scattered because of persecution. It's a warning not to envy the rich, even though it seems that they have the upper hand right now. Things are going to be reversed. It's also an encouragement to persevere for the righteousness under trial, for the righteous under trial. If you remember clear back in our first message when we first began in James, James starts out his letter telling these believers who are experiencing trials that that the testing of their faith produces endurance which will result ultimately in them being made perfect and complete. Remember that? Back in chapter 1. Perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Well, these believers now in this situation were lacking. 
because of being exploited. But what he's telling them is that their present exploitation and persecution by the rich, if endured with patience and faith until the coming of the Lord, will bring great blessing. They will be made perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And we'll see this in the next section in verses 7 through 11, which deals with how these persecuted believers should respond to the rich who are exploiting them. That's what we'll go into the next time. He exhorted them to patience and trust in God because God sees all this and he's going to take care of it. Well, that's, I think, the general flow of what we're looking at here, but I want to close by sharing just a few thoughts related to wealth and possessions. We said that this book of James talks about authentic faith. We've said that over and over. Well, authentic faith will affect your attitudes and actions concerning wealth and possessions. It's a big area of what faith in God is all about. How we use our wealth is, a, is an important part of worship. Though money and possessions are not sinful in themselves, they form a unique temptation for believers. I, th- I, I think we ought to realize that from what James is writing here. They form a unique temptation for believers because they tempt us to trust in ourselves and our resources instead of trusting in God and his resources. So one of the main things I think that we should go away from this is, from this should be that we should remember that material wealth is spiritually dangerous. Material wealth is spiritually dangerous. It can draw us towards pride and presumption. The fact is that rich people, at least those that have a lot of material possessions, are often not humble people. Such is the power of mammon. You can't serve God in mammon. Jesus says, beware of every form of greed. It comes in a lot of different forms. But whatever form it is, we're told in the New Testament that it's a form of idolatry. Another thing I think we can glean from this is that when Christians go through hardship, they should not envy the rich or think that that kind of wealth is worth pursuing, their kind of wealth, this materialistic thing of uh, affluence and self-indulgence. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God. He'd take care of this. And we're told that we should desire to be rich in good works. If you want to be rich, be rich in good works. As Jesus, or as James has exhorted his readers, we should desire to care for the needy. Remember that clear back in chapter 1? That's true religion, he said. Now let me read it. Does anyone? Well, verse 27. This is pure, chapter 1, verse 27. This is pure and undefiled religion in the sight of God 
our God and Father, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. So James exhorts us to desire to care for the needy. That's, that's the kind of riches that uh, you want to have. Be rich in good works and use the, the material possessions you have for good. Uh, we're not to show favoritism to the rich. We're not to hoard wealth or treat others unjustly or live in self-indulgence. All these things are brought out in, in the book of James. To live to get rich is to rob yourself of true riches. And one of the big things that James is telling us here is that God will judge all such misuse of money. God will judge those things. The final judgment will be related to our use of wealth, partly at least, related to our use of wealth, <coughs> material wealth that has not been used in God's way will not help anyone on judgment day. Material wealth that has not been used in God's way will not help anyone on judgment day. In fact, it will be a positive witness against that person and this will include the sins of omission like neglecting to help the needy. Jesus brought that out very clearly in Matthew 25. You remember this situation there? Let me just read the last of the account. Then he, that is Christ, will say to those on his left, Depart from me. We're talking about judgment day. Depart from me, you accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick, and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they will say, then they will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in a prison, and did not take care of you? Then he will say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it, sin of omission, you see, the extent that you did not do it to the least of these, you did not do it to me. I think he's talking about Christians there primarily. The least of these. Well, let me close here with Proverbs 19.17. He who is gracious to a poor man lends to the Lord. And he, that is the Lord, will repay him for his good deed. We all need God's wisdom in, in these areas. The fact is that there are sluggards and shiftless people who know how to do their own form of exploitation of the, of the, the religious person. So we need discernment. What we need is a wise generosity. And James said, if any man lack wisdom, let him ask of God. So we need, we, you know, we just, we need wisdom in how we treat one another and especially the poor and needy uh, or those who appear to be poor and needy in this, in this life. So... Uh, I'll stop there.
we'll, we'll pick up in verse 7 and uh, go through verse 11 next time, Lord, Lord willing, 7 through 11. Any, anything anyone has here before we close related to what we've looked at?